And you turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pick right up where we left off last time. Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read for you beginning in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would uh, cause us to remember what we've been teaching here in the book of Matthew. And, and Lord, as we enter into this section concerning your word, your law, Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply the words that we have read this morning to our hearts. Lord, we also pray for our children and the, the, the Sunday school workers that you would bless them, open their hearts to your word. I pray that they would have a good time of fellowship and teaching. And uh, we just ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to take a little bit of time to get through these uh, verses. So today's kind of like an introductory foundation for you to really understand uh, what Jesus is saying here. Um, and today I kind of want to focus on verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Uh, one thing we see today in our society, and recent studies have shown us, that there's a massive loss of confidence in the law and in religion. Just across the board. And one of the most important causes of this loss of confidence in both the law and in religion really is this separation that's been made between the two. Um, we have to understand that you can't have workable rules, you can't have workable laws for behavior without some form of foundation that being religious. Because only religion really provides an absolute base on which morality and law can be based. And I'm not just talking about Christianity. This came from the Middle East. There's a lot of religious stuff going on over there. And a lot of their laws are based on their religions. One point in time, we were going up to the uh, Temple Mount. And I don't know why, but every time I was asked to teach, it was always on a, a, a portion of Scripture um, where they, after Jesus taught, they took him and threw him over the cliff. So I don't know what that was about. I just thought about that this morning. I thought, boy, each time I taught it was concerning throwing the teacher over the cliff. But uh, uh, it's kind of, I have to ask David when he gets here if that was in his thinking when he did that or just a circumstance. But uh, there's this radical separation between the two in our country. But over there, it's not so much so. And... Um, only religion really provides an absolute base on which morality and law can be based. Um, and we live in a society today that's very uh, relative in its thinking. Um, because there's no absolute upon which the law is based. 
So when men break away from the idea of an authoritative religion that is a foundation, even the concept of God, they break away from the possibility of absolute truth. That's a big debate today. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And so the only remaining thing, if you don't believe in absolute truth, is this relativism that's kind of this slippery slope, and it's ever-changing, and there's no authority system based on that of law or morals, and there's nothing that can be built. And when you end up with religionists in a society, you can never command any kind of authority. One professor said this, if law is merely an experiment... And if judicial decisions are only hunches, why would individuals or groups of people observe these legal rules or commands that do not conform to their own interests? Well, the answer is they wouldn't. See, rules without absolutes are rules without authority. How many times have you told your children, you know, do this? And they say, well, why? And you're like, just because I told you so. Well, you know, that, that may work, but that's not really a good basis upon which to do it. Rules without absolutes are rules without authority, except when you enforce them with force or coercion. See, when God is abandoned, when truth is abandoned, the basis of all morals, of all laws, they're abandoned with it. And so a a consistent legal system can't be built on humanism. It can't be built on the principle of just feeling what's right and wrong and that everything's going to fluctuate according to each individual. There was an article in Esquire magazine years ago and this person answered, asked this question, how can moral principles be grounded and social institutions ultimately legitimized in the absence of a religiously based culture? And the answer is they can't. If there's no religious absolute, there can be no basis for any real law. People won't respect it. They won't obey it. Because they look at it as just guesses. Somebody made these, these laws up just out of, the, out of a whim. And so you have an evil, godless society today that's basically floating around in this you know, sea of relativism And they realize there's no foundation, there's no anchor, there's no unmoving point of reference. And so all of a sudden law, the rules, all of a sudden they become a preference. And they contain no power. And even in a democracy, it's even more important because ultimately the power is vested in the people. And if people don't believe that, you're going to have chaos. Let me ask you, is there an absolute basis for truth? Is there an absolute basis for law, for morals, for real right and wrong? And if so, what is it? Well, those are the questions, basically, that Jesus addresses here in Matthew five seventeen to 20. He's talking about absolutes. The law of God is the law of the eternally sovereign God. See, God has laid down His absolute. God has laid down His eternal abiding law and He's made it known to us in His book, the Bible. 
And as God's own son, Jesus declared basically that he did not come to teach or to practice anything that was contrary to the law of God, even in the slightest way. And he wanted to uphold it entirely. He had to. He was perfect. A couple things we always hear in our society today. We hear, and you probably hear this if you ever share the gospel with any, well, you know, times have changed and, you know, the Bible just doesn't fit anymore. You ever heard that people say that? You know, the truth, of course, is the opposite, isn't it? The truth is the absolute opposite. The Bible always fits because the Bible is God's perfect, eternal, infallible word. And it's the standard by which that word fit is measured. It's the world that doesn't fit the Bible, beloved. Let's get it right. And not because the world has changed, but because the Bible has not changed. The Word of God does not change. See, outwardly, the world has changed a great deal since biblical days. Just go on a tour of of the Holy Land and you'll see how much it's changed. One point, we we looked at this this ruins of this city and uh, they showed us basically the latrine. Big kind of granite slab. You saw the little potties there right next to each other. And there's a ditch there, and that's where they would go to the bathroom. Just amazing. Times have changed. See, outwardly, the world has changed a great deal. But in its basic nature, in its basic orientation to God's Word, it's always been opposed to God, and it's always been opposed to His Word. That has never changed. The world has never fit Scripture. You also may hear the argument that's proposed that Scripture is, well, it's just a collection of various men's ideas about God and about right and wrong, and you know, you can apply them however you want, and everybody's entitled to their own personal interpretation of Scripture, and so therefore you can't be dogmatic in any area. One person's view is just as good as another. There's no place for dogmatism. You don't want to be dogmatic about anything theological because, you know, it's just kind of all up in the air. Well, the proper hermeneutic is that there's only one true interpretation of any scripture. There's many applications, but there's only one true interpretation. What does the Word of God say? That's why we teach the Bible. Because we want to know what the Bible says. Once we understand what it says, then we can apply it. And you may apply it in a variety of ways. That's why it's very dangerous to get a bunch of Christians together and read a portion of Scripture and then go around the room and say, well, what's that mean to you? Oh, that means this. So how about next? What's that mean to you? Oh, I think it means this. And you go around the room and everybody shares and nobody says anything about who's right or who's wrong and then you move on to the next verse. Very dangerous. That's not Bible teaching. See, men have been left free to believe or not believe, to follow or not to follow any or all of the Scripture as it suits them. That's the society we live in today. Each person becomes their own judge over Scripture, and the end result is basically most of them disregard the whole thing altogether. See, it's impossible. It's totally impossible to take Jesus seriously if you don't take the Scriptures seriously. It's impossible to believe Jesus spoke absolute truth and not consider Scripture to be absolute truth. 
Because that is precisely what Jesus taught it to be. He never said, well, you know, if you feel like it, you know, I guess I'm the way, I guess I'm the truth. I heard somebody in an interview the other day, Joel Olstein, I think it was on the Glenn Beck show, and he said, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian pastor, so you kind of believe that, you know, I mean, Jesus, and, and his answer was something like this, don't quote me on this, but he said, well, you know, uh, Glenn, once you get past all that, basically, you know, God is love. Past all what? The essentials of the gospel? See, if Jesus was mistaken or deluded on this point, that the word of God was not absolute truth, let's just pack our bags and go home. There's no reason to accept anything he said. Now, you remember at the onset of his, the outset of his ministry, he makes clear that his authority and scripture's authority are the same. You remember, his, his truth and Scripture's truth are identical. They're inseparable. God's revealed word, Jesus, says not only is truth, but is truth conveyed with absolute authority. He said, I am the what? The truth. See, it's that authority that he came to teach and he came to minister. And it's that authority that he commands his children, kingdom citizens, to bow and obey. It's not left up to your whim to do what you feel you should do just on the day of the week that you want to do it. God clearly portrays for us in His Word what He expects from us. And we've been going over the Beatitudes, and they've spoken to our heart. And if you apply that portion of Scripture, you'll become all that God wants you to be. And don't forget, for 30 years, Jesus lived in privacy, almost obscurity. Probably only Mary and his, his intimate family really would have remembered all the miraculous events that surrounded his birth in his early years. You know, we read it in our Bibles and it's like the next verse. Well, we just think that that's the next day. No, there's 30 years here of Christ's life that basically he didn't do anything. Helped out dad and kind of, you know... He lived in obscurity. As far as his friends and his neighbors were concerned, he was but a unique Jewish carpenter. One thing we kind of learned over there while we were over there, just to tie this trip in a little bit, that Joseph, we always think of Joseph and Jesus as a carpenter, and we think of, of somebody who's working in a wood shop and, you know, Making all this stuff out of wood. Well, you know, you don't have to be around there, over there very long to realize, you know, there's not that many trees. I mean, there's, there's more now than there, there, there was then probably, but there's not that many trees over there. What would a carpenter do? And that word in the Greek can also mean stonemason. And we actually looked at feeding troughs that were hewn out of stone. And one of our guides said, this is probably most likely what they laid the baby Jesus in. It wasn't a nice little manger made out of wood. <laughs> Joseph was probably a stonemason. Interesting. Because there's lots of rocks over there, let me tell you. A ton of rocks. Shelly, you'd love it over there. I mean, there's, there's rocks all over the place. She paints on rocks, if you're wondering what I'm talking about. But it was when he began his ministry, when Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he started to preach, 
all of a sudden, all the eyes were focused on him. We actually got baptized in that, that, that river Jordan. That was an interesting experience. They have catfish because they don't eat catfish. Huge catfish in this river. I mean, huge, like four feet long, some of them. And you're out there waiting to be baptized, and these little, I don't know what they were, guppies or something, are nibbling at your toes. It's just a weird experience, let me tell you. Luckily, we didn't lose anybody, and everybody got baptized, okay. But all of a sudden, when Jesus was baptized, all the eyes turned on him. And at that point, even the leaders of Israel could not ignore him any longer. His meekness, his humility, his gentleness, and his love marked him out to be such a contrast to the religious leaders of the day who were proud, who were selfish, who were arrogant. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests. And his call to repentance and his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom all of a sudden began to make people listen. Even if they didn't understand, even if they didn't agree, they saw something in Christ that was different. And they probably wondered to themselves if he was just another prophet. Maybe he was a special prophet. Maybe he was a false prophet. They didn't know. They wondered if he was the political or the military revolutionary that might be the Messiah that they were waiting for anxiously, who would break the yoke of Rome. He didn't talk or act like anyone else they'd ever seen or heard before. He didn't identify himself with any of the scribal schools or with any of the sects or the movements of the time. He was his own man. Nor did he identify himself with Herod or with Rome. Instead, Jesus openly, lovingly identified himself with who? With the outcasts, with the sick, with the sinful, with the needy of every sort. He proclaimed grace to them. He dispensed mercy to them. And whereas all the other rabbis and religious leaders talked only about these religious externals that they had, what he taught about, as we found out in the Beatitudes, what it matters is what's in the heart. That's what Jesus taught about. See, they focused on ceremonies. They focused on rituals. They focused on all their outward acts that they performed for everybody to see. Whereas he focused on what's in the heart. They set themselves above other men and they demanded their service. They'd wear religious robes and so that they looked a certain way so people could tell them apart from the crowd. Whereas Jesus, on the, others, on the other angle, he set himself below men. And he actually became a servant. Totally opposite. Of the primary concern to every faithful Jew during that time, when they were seeking to evaluate Jesus, the one question that probably every faithful Jew asked was, what does he think of the law? We want to know what this man thinks of the law. What does he think of Moses? What does he think of the prophets? Sure, he's healing people and everything, but what does he think of the law? And you see that over and over again. And the leaders often confronted Jesus on matters of the law. Many Jews believed that the Messiah would radically revise and overturn the, the Mosaic law and establish his own new standards. That's what they thought. They interpreted Jeremiah 31, 31 as teaching that God's new promised covenant would annul the old covenant and start over a completely new moral basis. 
And they were sickened of the demanding hypocritical legalism of the Pharisees. And many people hoped that the Messiah would bring in a new day of freedom and of hope from these burdensome, mechanical, meaningless demands of the traditional religious system of the day. And even the scribes and the Pharisees realized God's revealed standards of righteousness were impossible to keep. They realized that. That's one reason why they invented their own traditions. They were easier to keep than the law. I mean, you stop and you think about it. The traditions that they came up with were more involved. They were more complicated and detailed than God's law. But for the most part, they stayed within the bounds of human accomplishment. Within what man could do in his own power and his own resources. And because of that, their traditions inevitably were lowered below the standard of God, below the scriptural teaching. And the whole system of self-righteousness is built on reducing God's standards and elevating one's own imagined goodness. That's what, that's what basically that, that whole system was built on. And it soon became obvious that Jesus fit none of these common molds of the religious leaders. And people began to ask, who is this guy? He obviously had a high regard for the law, but at the same time, he taught things completely contrary to the traditions of the day. His teachings didn't lower scriptural standards, but upheld them in every way. And he not only put God's standards at a height where it belonged, but he also, they looked at his life, and he lived at an impossible human level. And so they were intrigued by all this. You notice there in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets. That's what we call the Old Testament. That's the only written scripture at the time Jesus preached. It's therefore about the Old Testament that Jesus speaks in Matthew 5. Everything he taught directly in his own ministry, as well as everything he taught through the apostles, is based where? It's based on the Old Testament. You know, you run into some, well, I just read the New Testament. You know, the Old Testament, I don't come. You're not going to understand the New Testament if you don't read the Old Testament, beloved. And as we've seen over the weeks when we were going through the Beatitudes, each teaching in the Sermon of the Mount flows out of the teaching that preceded it. Each Beatitude logically followed the one before it. And every teaching is related to the previous teachings. And so what Jesus teaches here in verses 17 to 20, it follows directly from what he just said. There's no disconnect here at all. I mean, you're reading it through and you're going, okay, all this stuff is good. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, Wow, that's good. And then all of a sudden he says, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. You're going, where does that come from? Well, remember in verses 3 to 12 of Matthew 5, it really tells us about the character of believers who are the children of God. Verses 13 to 16 told us about the function of those believers. Remember that we're supposed to be God's spiritual salt and light in a corrupt and darkened world. We're the only hope that the world has is to share the gospel, to go out and to share the gospel. And now verses 17 to 20 teach us about the foundation upon which these inner qualities, the Beatitudes, and the functioning of being God's light and salt, that's what it's supposed to be based on. The foundation, beloved, is what? Is God's word. The only standard of righteousness and the only truth. Usually when we have our church logo somewhere, 
I'll put underneath it a little saying that says uh, something to the effect of, can't remember it. <laughs> Building lives upon the firm foundation of God's word. Thank you. Something to that degree. You know, if we don't build upon the foundation of God's word, what are we going to build on? The sayings of Steve? Who cares? It's not what I have to say. It's what God's word has to say. See, we can't live the righteous life or be God's faithful witnesses by lowering his standards and then claiming to follow the higher law of love and of permissiveness. See, whatever is contrary to God's law is beneath it, not above it. See, our society's got that all wrong. No matter what the motive behind them, standards that are unbiblically permissive have no part either in God's love or his law. Because his love and his law are inseparable. They go together. See, the key and the only key to a righteous life is what? Is keeping the word of God in obedience to him. Jesus warns them. He says, do not think. It indicates there that most, if not all of his hearers, had the wrong conception about what Christ was all about. See, most traditional Jews considered the rabbinical instructions to be the proper interpretations of the law of Moses. And they looked at the life of Jesus, and he didn't follow these traditions. He broke the mold. He obviously was doing away with the law then, if he didn't follow the traditions. And because Jesus swept away traditions of the washings and of special ties and extreme Sabbath observances and all those such things that were just basically invented by the Jews that couldn't follow God's law in the first place, everybody thought, you know what? He's overthrowing God's law. That's why he's here. And from the outset, Jesus therefore wanted to kind of make sure that his hearers didn't have any misconception about his view of Scripture. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, over and over again, as well as the other Gospels, Jesus repeatedly uses Scripture to contradict and really to indict the superficial and hypocritical scribes and Pharisees of the day. And though not always specifically identical... It is primarily their beliefs and practices that Jesus exposes. That's what he does in in verses 21 of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 18. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. That word literally means to overthrow, to destroy. It's used of the, the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24. It's used of the destruction or the death of a body in 2 Corinthians 5. The basic idea of that word destroy or abolish is to tear down, to smash to the ground, to obliterate it completely. It's even used in Acts 5. It says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. That's the word right there. But if it is God, you cannot overthrow it. See, doing that to God's law is the opposite of what Jesus' work and his teaching was all about. He didn't come to destroy the law. 
And the remainder of verse 17 basically focuses on, as John mentioned previously, the preeminence of Scripture, the superiority of Scripture. Do we really believe that God gave us His Word and that's all He gave us? You know, if you get a gift and you open the gift and you have the slightest idea what this gift is or what it's to be used for, what do you look for in the box? You look for an instruction manual, right? And you read the instruction manual. Oh, this is what this thing's used for. Had a new roof put on our house and I had to reconnect the the satellite dish, you know. God forbid we should go a couple days without a satellite dish. You know, I don't understand that. We've been without a satellite dish for three and a half weeks now. But I come home, and in my heart, i got to get this thing hooked up. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> so I had to go buy a compass. Because you got to point it in the right degree angle to pick up the satellite. So I'm thinking, I know how to use a compass. That's basic, right? Well, I get this compass out of the box, cheap little compass. I'm looking at it, and it's one kind of using a map, and I'm going, okay, wait a minute. Now, let's see. Uh, I can't remember. It's Boy Scouts, do you do this? I'm trying to remember all this stuff. It was an ROTC, trying to remember when we were out there on the hills climbing, trying to find our way back. Finally, I broke out the instructions. I said, okay, if I want to do and I figured it out. That's what you do. You look to the instruction manual. That's what God's Word is to us. It's His basic instructions before leaving earth, someone said. The Bible. That's what God's Word is to us. And we have to believe that it's authoritative. We have to believe that it's perfect. We have to believe that it's eternal. Or we don't have anything. What are we going to base our Christianity on? And he points out three things here quickly. First of all, that it's authored by God. You notice in verse 17, he says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law. Very important. Little word there. Definite article. The law. He's talking about the law of God. And he made it clear by using that definite article to his Jewish audience that it was God's law that he was talking about. He wasn't talking about somebody else's law. He was talking about God's law. In Exodus 20, we see where God gave His law, the Ten Commandments to Moses. Then God spoke all these things saying, and it goes on. And you see how personally and directly God gives His law. He uses the first person pronouns I and me continually in Exodus 20. And so the law given is the only law because the Lord is the only God. It's not like you have three doors, you know, which law do you want? No, there's only one law. It's the law of God. It's the word of God. Malachi 3.6 says the Lord does not change. Well, his law doesn't change either. It doesn't change to meet the whims of society or even the whims of theologians. It wasn't given to be adapted or to be modified, but it was given that we would obey it. It wasn't given to suit man's will, but to reveal, reveal God's will to us. And Jews of the day really referred to God's law in four different ways. First of all, in the most limited sense, it was talking about the Ten Commandments. In a broader sense, it was talked about the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses. And even a broader sense, 
It seemed to talk about the entire scriptures of the day, what we call the Old Testament. And there was a fourth way that it would refer to the law was in reference to the rabbinic or the scribal traditions of the day. They came up with thousands of the external requirements that obscured the revealed word of God. And these traditions were supposed to interpret what the word of God said. Not too much different than the religions we have today. They do the same thing, just in a different way. And Jesus, over and over, sternly told the scribes, he told the Pharisees, that they invalidated the word of God for the sake of what? Their traditions. Matthew fifteen six. Now you stop and you think about this for a moment. You would think, on the surface, that the traditions made the law harder. See, they looked at the law of God and they said, well, nobody can keep this. So let's interpret it for everybody. But in reality, they made it much easier. Because what they did is they made the observance entirely external. They talked about keeping the traditions, and that demanded a great deal of effort, but it demanded no heart obedience. It demanded no faith in God. God's law had always required inward as well as outward obedience. As we read this morning, Isaiah 29, 13, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but what? They remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. That's a problem for us today. We get comfortable in our religious talk. We get comfortable in our religious lives. And we just kind of go through the motions. Sunday morning you wake up, you go to church. Why? You just go to church. See, and during the exile, during the intertestamental period, these traditions were multiplied. And they covered almost possibly every activity a person could be involved in. And the rabbis used to look through Scripture to find various commands and regulations. And then they would add certain things to those commands and regulations and say, well, these are the requirements. This is really what it means. Stop and think about it. To the command not to work on the Sabbath. That's a commandment. God said that. They added the idea that carrying a burden was a form of work. You don't find that in Scripture. Then they faced the question of determining exactly what constituted a burden. So they decided that a burden is food equal to the weight of a fig. They just kind of came up with this this on their own. Or enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Or milk enough for one to swallow honey. Or honey enough to put in a wound. Or oil enough to anoint a small member of the body. These all constitute a burden. (laughs) Or ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Not three. Two. You could write one, but you couldn't write two. Read enough to make a pen, and so on and so on. And to carry anything more than those prescribed amounts that they came up with on their own on the Sabbath was to break God's law. That's what they concluded. And it was impossible, obviously, to anticipate or provide for every contingency. Much of the time was spent arguing about silly things like whether a tailor committed a sin when he went out on the Sabbath day with a needle stuck in his robe. 
or whether moving a lamp from one place in a room to another was permissible. I mean, we're talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Who cares? But strict interpreters believe that even wearing an artificial leg or using a crutch on the Sabbath constituted work. And they argued about whether or not a parent could lift a child on the Sabbath. Can you, can you imagine how crazy this became? They even decided that to heal someone was work. But they did make obvious exceptions for grave situations. But you know, you could treat someone who was sick if you were just doing enough to keep the patient from getting worse, but you couldn't heal him. You had to wait for the Sabbath to be over to do that. It was the keeping of such external minutia that the religion of the day of the scribes and the Pharisees, and for many of the other Jews as well, was made up of. And to the strict Orthodox Jew of Jesus' day, the law was a kind of a, a myriad of extra scriptural rules and regulations. So when Jesus says the phrase, the law and the prophets, it's always understood to refer to the Jewish scriptures themselves. Not their crazy interpretations. Not their crazy rules and regulations that they came up with. The phrase is used some 15 times in the New Testament. Over and over again, and it reflects the common Jewish understanding. It's referring to the Word of God, not their you know, perceived understanding of the Word of God. Therefore, when Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets, his Jewish hearers knew exactly what he was speaking of, the Old Testament Scripture. The foundation of the Old Testament is the law given in the Pentateuch. And the prophets and the Psalms and inspired writers preached, they expounded, and they applied those principles. And that law of God was basically comprised of three parts. The moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. The moral was the, to regulate the behavior of men. The judicial was for Israel's operation as a unique nation. And the ceremonial law was prescribed to describe Israel's worship of God. The moral law was based on the Ten Commandments. The judicial and the ceremonial laws were based on subsequent uh, legislation given to Moses. It was on the plains of Moab that Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 13 to 14. He says, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at the time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now, because Matthew doesn't qualify the use of law here, we're safe to say that it's God's whole law, the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, the moral, the judicial, the ceremonial. That's what Jesus came not to destroy or to abolish, but it says he came to fulfill it. It was also affirmed by the prophets. It was affirmed by the prophets. The law is preeminent because it was affirmed by the prophets. The prophets reiterated, they reinforced the law. All of their warnings, all their admonitions and predictions were directly and indirectly based on the Mosaic law of the day. They spoke on things like idolatry, 
adultery, lying, stealing, and all the other Ten Commandments. They warned the kings and nobles and the people in general about keeping the laws of God given for their government, their lifestyle, their worship. That's what their role was. Even Jeremiah had his mouth touched by God's own hand. And they clearly were there to preach the law of God. It was also accomplished by Christ, thirdly. The final reason, I think, for the law's preeminence, God's word's preeminence, was its fulfillment by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, I did not come to destroy, but to what? To fulfill. See, in his incarnation, in the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, in his coming again, Jesus would fulfill all the law, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. The Old Testament is complete. It's all that God intended it to be. And it gives us a great picture of the coming king and his kingdom. And Jesus the king came to fulfill every detail. Five times in the New Testament, beloved, we're told that Jesus was claiming to be the theme of the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. Some people say that he fulfilled it by his teaching. Well, that may be one way, but it can't be the the primary way because that's not what it means. The word fulfill does not mean to fill, but to fill up. It doesn't mean to add, but to complete what is already present. See, Jesus didn't add any basic new teaching, but rather clarified what God's original meaning was. Other commentators say that Jesus fulfilled the law by meeting all its demands. I mean, obviously, he kept the law perfectly. He was God. He didn't violate even the smallest portion of God's law. But most importantly, I think the Spirit intends to emphasize here that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by being its fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the law. He, he didn't simply teach it fully. He didn't simply exemplify it fully. He was it fully. He didn't come simply to teach righteousness and to model righteousness. We have to understand that he came as divine righteousness. He himself was righteous. What he said and what he did, that was just a reflection of who he was. He fulfilled the moral law, clearly. I mean, one area of the moral law, we stop and we think about it. Today, we think of keeping the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, let's comment on that for a second. See, the essence of the Sabbath observance, when it was giving was not necessarily resting. It wasn't even refraining from work. That wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was on what? It was on holiness. It was a provision meant to remove the heart from the earthly endeavors and to turn the heart to God. It was a symbol. And because Christ fulfilled all righteousness and has become our righteousness... The purpose of the Sabbath observance ended at the cross. There was no need for it. Christians possess the reality. It's no, we don't have to have a symbol. We've entered into a permanent 
Salvation rests, the writer of Hebrews said, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Every day has become holy to the Lord as a new believer, as a New Testament believer. In demonstration of that fact, stop and think in the book of Acts. When it says the church first began, what did they do? They met together, what? Every day for worship. They continued daily in one accord, it says. I mean, we're lucky if we can squeeze in one day. We think we've done God a favor by coming here Sunday morning. The New Testament church, beloved, they were meeting every day. Can you imagine if we were meeting every day together? You're going, I don't want to think about it. (laughs) Schedule won't allow it. Don't even go there. See, before long, their primary worship meetings were held on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, which became known, Revelation 1.10 tells us, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, because it was associated with Jesus' resurrection. That's why we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week. Sometimes we don't even think of Sunday as the first day of the week. We think of Sunday as the last day of the week. We've been through a rough week. We drag ourselves in here and say, oh, pump me up so I can make it through another week. And we think of Monday as the first day of the week. Because our whole lives are built around what we do, our career, our work. Well, that wasn't so in the New Testament church. Everything was, the hub was the church. And all the spokes of life went out from the hub, which was the church. Would it be to God that we could get back to that centrality of the church in our lives? It's not something we just add to our platter on the side, but it, it, it's the platter itself. And we begin to think in our thinking that we're filtering everything through our commitment to the church. Not to our job, not to our schedule. See, that day was to stimulate them to holiness. For every other day of the week, Hebrews 10.24 says, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as we see what? The day approaching. It's not just talking about Sunday. It's talking about assembling every day. Paul made it clear that there's no longer any special day of worship. That may blow your mind. But you know what? If you want to worship on Tuesday, you can worship on Tuesday. If you want to worship on Thursday or any other day of the week, it's no less biblical, no less spiritual than worship on the Lord's Day. See, we have this idea in our head that Sunday has somehow become the Christian Sabbath. (laughs) But it's simply a day of worship most Christians have observed since the New Testament times Because that was the day that Jesus was raised. It's a special time set aside for spiritual exercises. It's not any more holy than any other day. If you want to go home on Sunday and cut your grass, go home on Sunday and cut your grass. God's not keeping score on those kind of things. But it has the idea that your heart is turned to God. Your heart is resting from the cares of of this world. If that means then you go home and relax with the word of God and devotion to him, then that's true. The moral aspect here in the Sabbath law is the heart of true worship. That's what we're talking about. Not some external observance of a day. 
And he pointed that out over and over. Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He fulfilled the judicial law. His crucifixion marked basically Israel's ultimate apostasy when they finally rejected him as their Messiah. One day he will restore Israel, he'll redeem them. But in the meanwhile, the church is here. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we're his chosen body of people on earth. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law as well. You stop and you think, sacrifice was the heart of all Old Testament worship. And as the perfect sacrifice, Jesus brought all other sacrifices to an end. When he was on the cross, it says, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew 27 says. Christ himself was the new and perfect way into the Holy of Holies. He didn't have to go through all these other sacrifices. Hebrews 10.19 tells us, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus to a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system couldn't do that. Only Christ could do that. And even though the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD, all these offerings were basically needless after Christ died. Symbolically, they had no more significance. The ultimate sacrifice was given through Christ. You have to remember the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices, even before Christ's death, never had the power to cleanse people from their sin. They were only pictures of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior's work of cleansing. (coughs) Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, When Christ appeared as the high priest, of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not of the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The ceremonial law ended because it was fulfilled in Christ. And that reality had come. The pictures and the symbols had no more place. They had no more purpose. On the final Passover night of our Lord's life, He instituted new symbols to commemorate His death. We use those at communion time. The wine, the bread. They're symbols of His death. When you stop and you compare the Old Testament aspect of worship with the high priest of our Lord Jesus Christ, You stop and you think of it this way. Aaron, who was the first and the foremost high priest of the Old Covenant. But he could not compare with our high priest of the New Covenant. Stop and think about this. Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle. That's where he went to make his sacrifice. But Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle. Aaron entered once a year. Christ once for all time. Aaron entered beyond the veil. Christ tore the veil in two. Aaron offered many sacrifices. Christ offered only one. Aaron sacrificed for his own sin. Christ only sacrificed for the sins of others. Aaron offered the blood of bulls. Christ offered his own blood. Aaron was a temporary priest. Christ was an eternal one. 
Aaron was fallible. Christ is infallible. Aaron was changeable. Christ is unchangeable. Aaron was continual. Christ is final. Aaron's sacrifice was imperfect. Christ's sacrifice was perfect. Aaron's priesthood was insufficient. Christ sacrificed is all-sufficient. Just like the priesthoods couldn't compare, neither could the tabernacle and temple compare with Christ. They each had a door, whereas Christ is the door. They each had a brazen altar, whereas Christ is the altar. They had a labor, but he himself cleanses from sin. They had many lamps that continually needed filling. The word of God tells us that Christ is the light of the world that shines eternally. They had bread that had to be replenished, but Christ is the eternal bread of life. They had incense, but Christ's own prayers ascend for his saints. They had a veil, but his veil was his own body. They had a mercy seat, but he is now the mercy seat. And even their offerings, the burnt offering spoke of perfection, but Christ was the perfection incarnate. The meal offering spoke of dedication, but Jesus, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am. But Jesus was himself wholly dedicated to the Father. The peace offering spoke of peace, but Jesus is himself our peace. The sin and the trespass offering spoke of substitution, but he is our substitute. And even the feast couldn't compare with Christ. See, the idea here, beloved, what God is trying to get across to us is that when Christ came, he didn't come to destroy the law. He couldn't destroy the law. The law is perfect. The law is eternal. It's the foundation upon which our whole Christian life is based. Over and over, the New Testament tells us that the law could not make anyone righteous. See, Jesus had to do what the law could not do. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by what? By works? By faith. See, the law only pointed to righteousness. But Christ gives us his own righteousness. The judicial law, the ceremonial law, they were fulfilled and they were set aside. They ended at the cross. But the moral law fulfilled by Christ is still being fulfilled through his disciples. That's what we're called to live out day by day. Because Christ fulfilled the law, so can those who belong to him. The word of God says, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit this morning if you don't leave if you leave with nothing else other than this understand that we need to walk in the spirit of God we don't walk walk by the letter of the law when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the righteousness of the law because Christ in us fulfills it with his own righteousness in which he has given us. Let's close in a word of prayer and ask the worship team to come. Father, we thank you 
for your word this morning. Lord, I want to just put out the question here this morning. What are you trusting in this morning? Where is your faith? Where is your trust? Is it in religious symbols? Is it in rituals? Is it in some form of external observance? To some law that we've made up in our own mind? God clearly says in his word that just external observances to the law without an inward transformation does not please him. It definitely does not secure salvation. The only way our salvation is secured by putting our faith and our trust in the risen Lord. We pray this morning, if there's one here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in God, in his Son, in his final work on the cross for their own salvation, I pray that you would do that work in their heart this morning. And Lord, we do pray for this woman this morning. We pray that you would work in her heart. You would give her a heart of understanding. And Lord, we ask this, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll have...